You're listening to the Full and Thriving Podcast, a place where courageous women come to break free from food obsession, heal their relationship with their body, and strive to live a life that's present, lighthearted, and meaningful. If you're listening, my wish is that this podcast serves as a catalyst that inspires you to nourish your body, nurture your mind, and energize your spirit. I'm your host, Meg McCabe, a certified life coach and eating disorder recovery coach with a PhD in having a good time. Just kidding about that last part. Anyway, thank you so much for listening and enjoy the show. Hello, everyone, and welcome to another episode of the Full and Thriving Podcast. Today's guest is Melanie Rogers. Melanie is a registered dietitian and the founder and executive director of Balance Eating Disorder Treatment Center. She's also the founder of Melanie Rogers Nutrition LLC. In 2002, Melanie developed the largest private group nutrition practice specializing in eating disorders in New York City, my favorite city in the world. And she is passionate about helping others find a true healthy relationship to food. Melanie and her team over at Balance Treatment Center will be hosting a body image series with the members of the Recovery Collective this fall. And I couldn't be more honored and excited to be working with her and her team. Today, we'll be talking about how to disconnect your worth from your size. So buckle up because this episode is going to be really fun and informative and we had a ton of laughs. So I hope you enjoyed as much as I did. Hello everyone and welcome to the show. I have the amazing Melanie Rogers with me today and welcome Melanie. It's so great to have you here. Meg, it's such a pleasure. Thanks for having me on your podcast. You are so welcome. Oh man. First of all, I want everyone to know that Melanie is just a fabulous dietitian based in New York City, and she is working with me to bring a collaboration between the Balance Treatment Center and the Recovery Collective in the fall. We're going to be doing a body image series. I'm so excited for that. Yeah, I'm really, really excited. And I want to just also give a shout out to you, Meg, that I'm just so impressed with the work you're doing and helping, you know, clients out there, people out there who are struggling. And it's just an amazing stuff that you're putting together. So really, really honored to be a part of it as well. Well, thank you. I'm honored that you all are on board at Balance. And I'm really excited because you are our first treatment center that's coming in and being a part of this amazing collective. So we're honored to have you guys as well. So for all of you listening today, Melanie and I have decided to discuss a topic that I know will resonate with all of you. And this is the subject of disconnecting your worth from your weight and your size. It's something we, if you have an eating disorder, chances are you've struggled with this component, you know, struggled with where do you find your own self-worth and how do you make sure that it's not connected to your appearance or your size? Because the world is very kind of obsessed with appearance these days. So before we dive into that, Melanie, I just wanted to ask you, how did you become the person you are today? How did you start working in the eating disorder field? 
Sure, Meg. Yes, I um, I originally from Australia, hence the accent, but mm-hmm. I came over to New York to study and do my master's in nutrition to become a registered dietitian here at uh, New York University. And, uh, and I didn't have a concept of going into the eating disorder field. It wasn't really on my mind. I was thinking more cardiovascular health or sports nutrition. Uh, but one, one thing that drew me to New York to, in order to study here is that, and I uh, trigger warning, cause I'm going to use a few medical terms here, guys, that we don't use in our field, but there is an obesity research center here in New York city. And someone, as someone from Australia who a little bit of a geek and following the research, I wanted to be around the people who were making discoveries around health and food. And in that case, when we used to, when we, the public health still refers to it as an obesity epidemic, but we, we know more now. But anyway, long story short, I wanted to be around that research. I wanted to be at the cutting edge of the latest findings so that we could help people. And that was honestly motivated by the fact that my grandmother really struggled with her weight um, and she ultimately struggled and, and um, died at a very young age from uh, heart disease. And so hence I was thinking as a nutritionist, I could go into cardiovascular, but I was also very much had an eye on the fact that we were told then that she being a, a woman in a larger body, that that had caused the attack. We now know that it wasn't actually the fact. It was, it was from a genetic vulnerability. So I came here to New York specifically to be around the research, hoping to intern there, hoping to possibly work there. Um, I was successful in interning there and then was offered a job and worked there for a couple of years. And for the for the end of the story, it was there that I learned about binge eating disorder. And they had a team of people, an RD, a therapist, a psychiatrist, an MD, and a sports physiologist as a team, that's five, five different disciplines, helping people who were struggling with binge eating disorder. And um, for this particular cohort of people, they also were struggling with um, weight gain as a result of that, of that illness. And I was blown away. And I thought, this is it. This is so interesting because it's not just the physiology, which I love, but it's also the psychology of even when we know um, it's it's better for us to not do this or to do that, it's really hard for us to make behaviour change. And I saw it again being influenced by my grandmother and I saw how much she struggled. Um, and so it just hooked me in. Um, and then long story short, as I got to learn more about binge eating, I started going to conferences around eating disorders and I started to piece it together and I realized, my goodness, I had my own eating disorder back in my 20s, but I would never have had admitted that to myself. Mm-hmm. And I thought I was not sick enough to have had for that to have been an eating disorder. I was just uber healthy and running too much, you know. So as you can see, Meg, it's been a, a series of steps that led to kind of a really a great interest in, in just the treatment and the clients and their struggles with a personal connection to my grandmother and then and then realising that I had previously had my own struggles but never, of course, um, labelled them as, as being, you know, of, of a equivalent to a diagnosis for an eating disorder but really what that what that did is I realized I understood the head spin because I'd been in the head spin mm. historically when I was in my eating disorder but fortunately fully recovered and I remember the stress and I remember that just well, your entire bandwidth is consumed with thinking about food and calories and weight and 
it's a really, really depleting existence. And so once I put all that together and I realised <laughs> that I had an insight because of my lived experience that I could ask questions that the clients were like, wow, how do you know that? <laughs> like, uh, <laughs> I don't know, I just thought it would be a good question, you know. Um, and then I started working with clients who struggled with bulimia and then, of course, started working with clients who were at the other end of the spectrum but nonetheless very severe uh, restrictors, so anorexia. And that just, for me, I knew I'd found my population and just it was, it's been just my passion, absolute passion to work with clients and knowing I have my own lived experience. My passion is from a place of I just want to help people get through recovery faster and get to the other side as fast as we can without relapse and just help them to ease that pain, you know, because mm. I've, I've walked in those shoes and it's, it's, it's not a fun existence. Mm-hmm. I love your story. I love how it was inspired by almost wanting to figure out your grandmother's life and then it evolved into also figuring out your past which yeah. is very interesting. And it's and- a little embarrassing, Meg, because I think of myself as pretty self-aware, but <laughs> it just goes to show how much this eating just sort of hijacks our brain and how how difficult it is to be objective when you're observing your own behaviours. And, and the, 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 I won't say lies, maybe the deceptions that we tell ourselves, like I'm just mm-hmm. uber healthy and you're just jealous of me and, um, <laughs> you know, I'm a marathon runner, so it's perfectly normal that I run all these miles and it was all just, you know, smoke and mirrors, in my case anyway. Mm-hmm. You know? Did you have the education about eating disorders during that period of your life? I did not because you know what's mm. so sad is that none of us as registered dietitians, we get no training in eating disorders. Therapists do not get training. MDs do not get training and psychiatrists. So, so for the audience out there, no healthcare professional, believe it or not, gets, except for our adolescent medicine specialists, get treating in eating disorders. The reason being that historically eating disorders were considered to be such a small, to impact such a small percentage of the population that when you think of all the other disease states that we need mm. to learn about, it was considered not, not essential. But we now know the lifetime prevalence of an eating disorder is about 10% of the population. That's 30 plus million people in the US alone. So we know that it's so much bigger than we ever thought. And that's not even covering disordered eating which is, mm-hmm. I would suggest, the other 90% of the population, <laughs> at least here in New yeah. York. So mm-hmm. we, you know, it's a massive oversight and I'm working really hard. I actually teach at NYU and I teach there to the master's level nutrition students, um, the only eating disorder class that they receive. Uh, but, you know, it's still an optional class. So it's not even a mandatory part of, of their training yet, but we're working on that. Mm. But I say that more as a, our training is behind the times, unfortunately. The next generation, um, I hope in the next five to 10 years, we'll pick up the slack here. But also for, for your audience out there, Meg, you know, if you go to your doctor, or you go to your therapist or you go to your nutritionist, if you are worried about some of your own behaviours, they may not know what they're talking about. So it's really important that you find eating disorder specialists. There's not a lot of us, but there, there we are out there. And so um, I really encourage people to seek out certified eating disorder 
specialist. Um, and there's a certification that that all of us have um, to help to help you know the general public understand and identify who we are. Mm, that is so helpful, and I couldn't agree more. We really need to make sure we surround ourselves with the people who specialize in eating disorders. But on that note, uh, now that I know that you had your own lived experience, I want to kind of wrap that into the topic today. Sure. When you were going through your own eating disorder, kind of unaware that it was an eating disorder, can you look back now and see how you connected your worth to maybe your size and your appearance and behaviors? Because it sounds like you also had kind of a morality thing going on with running marathons and being an athlete. Oh, absolutely. My worth was probably, um, I won't say 100% because, but it was high, let's say 90%. um, Because uh, for me, um, academically, I always took great pride in my academics and school. And so uh, for me, uh, there was a lot of value that I attached to my academics and learning and curiosity. So that was a part of my identity. Um, but I would say that on a day-to-day basis, um, my whole day was organized around calories and what I was eating and, and, uh, and how much I was running, um, and, and my weight, you know, and I, you know, like most of us, when we're in that place, you weigh yourself multiple times a day, um, you think you can control it, but not as much as we think we can. Um, and if I think about my day to day, I mean, I, I, I swear I spent 90% of the day thinking about food and calories and running, you know, so if you mm. think about where are you spending your energy and what are you spending your energy on, you're, re- you're leading a dual life because you're going through the day to day and I had a, a career um, and this is before I got into nutrition. Um, but, you know, I had this very high level job and I was hopefully quite competent at it, et cetera, et cetera. But, you know, it was always there. It's always in the back of your mm. mind. You know, it's it's like a dual tape going like I'm having a conversation. But as I'm having a conversation with my boss or a employee, I'm thinking about my pants are digging into me. And that's because I had X for dinner last night and I can't do that. So maybe I need to get home early so I can do another run and you know, it just goes on and on. Mm-hmm. That brain space is always really taken up with all of those thoughts and the obsession with food and the obsession with working out. Would you say there are, so that sounds like your experience. Do you see any other signs out there with people you work with, say, where their worth is really connected to their size? I want to make sure we paint a large picture for them. Absolutely. So, you know, presentations or manifestations of our worth being tied into how much we weigh, which is what this comes down Mm. to. And our worth also, I would suggest, is the number on the scale tells us in our mind whether we are okay or whether we are not okay. And not okay meaning that we are disgusting. Like, I'm disgusting. Um, I'm at this weight, Um, I don't have willpower, I'm ashamed of myself and people are going to notice that my stomach is poking out or whatever the the manifestation is in your mind. So then you try on, you know, 10 different outfits to get out the door in the morning. So that body image distortion Mm -hmm. can become so crippling and then the self-worth then is... You know, because if you're if you don't like yourself and if you're ashamed of yourself because of how your body looks in the mirror, 
and how you think it looks in the mirror, which is two different things, mm -hmm. and according to the number on the scale, then you cannot possibly fully own your sense of self, right? You, mm -hmm. you just can't. It's impossible to fully step into yourself and be your full version of yourself and therefore you, your full version of owning your opinions and owning your core values and, and feeling like you're living your life according to those core values and integrity. And I'm not saying you're a bad person, but you don't think you're worth a lot because you don't weigh a certain amount on the scale or you can't maintain a certain number on the scale or you have these overeating tendencies that you have to then, you know, punish yourself by running extra miles. So it's a very, very uh, self-flagellating experience. Self-flagellating meaning just you're mm. whipping yourself on the back all the time. And when you live life like that and you don't like yourself because you never can get to that so-called perfect place that you're seeking and stay there um, how can you possibly then if you don't like yourself then how can you think you're worth much mm -hmm. and therefore also that starts to influence um, everything from your relationships from intimate relationships and how you navigate or avoid those right mm -hmm. or if someone pays you attention and they they're romantically interested you may be thinking yeah but i'm an i'm i'm so ugly and gross how could this person possibly like me and i don't want them to touch me so there's all these different manifestations that mm -hmm. we see so for a lot of our clients they actually avoid relationships or they start to become impulsive around intimate relationships mm -hmm. as a way of um, trying to derive some some kind of self-worth or um, uh, trying to get some kind of um, uh, sense of approval from others. So then there's a lot of kind of casual sex and hookups and that sort of stuff. You know, again, I'm just talking about the intimate yeah. realm. On, yeah. on the larger scale around our careers, if you don't have a good sense of your self-worth um, and you don't really like yourself, how are you supposed to advocate for yourself in the workplace? How are you supposed to go to your... Go to your um, your manager or your boss and say, hey, listen, I did all these different things, these projects, and I'd like to ask for a pay increase. Or it's a lot harder. It's a lot harder when so much of your energy is sucked away by, but the number on the scale. Mm -hmm. And here's an example of that. I think we all know who Oprah Winfrey is. And I admire and love her. And like, you know, I'm probably a little older than some of the audience <laughs> members, but Oprah Winfrey just launched this whole like let's talk about it thing um, and reducing shame by not, you know, not keeping things secret and, and undercovers. And I just love what she's done. Um, she also used to own 10% of Weight Watchers, so I'm not so thrilled about that, but I digress. <laughs> Oprah Winfrey is probably one of, one of the most successful females that we have out there as a role model. And even she to this day um, still holds a great deal of dissatisfaction around her weight and her body image. And that kills me. That kills me to hear someone who's that accomplished still still pining or still needing to, to have some kind of um, acceptance around that or still making that a factor. Because here's the thing also for our audience, I don't hear that many guys doing that. Like I do think there's a just, there is, I don't even think we have the data. There is a disproportionate amount of this weight stuff that is um, very female, right? So you can be a, a higher weight 
bigger guy and be totally accepted and have a really successful career path. You try doing that as a woman and you're going to come across a lot more discrimination. You try doing that as a, as a woman of colour, then forget about it. So Oprah Winfrey, for a lot of reasons, has just um, really blazed, you know, been a trailblazer. However, she is still caught up uh, from the last time I heard any comments from her on that in the, in the media, of course. And that, it just it kills me. It kills mm. me, you know. So anyway, so that, that's a little bit about self-worth and how it can manifest. Wow. Thank you for painting that picture for everyone. While you were talking, I was thinking about my own experience and you were hitting on all the the key points about the scale and the volatility and the emotions packed behind stepping on the scale every day and professionally and in relationships. I didn't have a relationship till I was recovered pretty much because I said my eating disorder was my relationship. I will say that it felt like it was an abusive relationship, actually. Abusive. Um, You hit it. Meg, the other thing there, absolutely. And the other thing, just to add to that, as as we're speaking, I burned through a couple of really, really nice friendships during that period because Mm. friendships you know, it's often like, hey, let's go out for a drink or let's go and grab dinner or let's go and do this or let's go on a trip. And if it had anything to do with food, I had to say no Mm -hmm. or, okay, well, I'll only eat at this place. And, you know, when you're starting to make new friends, like if you (laughs) – that's not a good way to start a friendship. (laughs) I can't this weekend because I'm cleansing or fasting or whatever. And you find that the invitations stop coming in. Mm -hmm. And, you know, there was one invitation I remember in particular with this this woman who just joined our company and I really liked her and I thought, man, I I think we would really hit it off. And she invited me out for dinner and I just had a couple of bad days with food and the scale wasn't telling me what I needed. So I said to her, I would love to, but I'm cleansing this weekend or whatever I was doing, fasting. And she was like, oh, Oh, okay. Okay. And, and, and then it never went anywhere after that. And, and I remember that distinctly. And uh, so I want to highlight also for our, for our audience out there, you know, being with your eating disorder is a pretty lonely existence, you know, because um, there are some people, of course, they're disordered. So we would be disordered together, which is not healthy. <laughs> but, you know, <laughs> yeah. you end up, you end up your, your, your social circle can also diminish significantly as well. Mm-hmm. That is really why I decided to create the collective because I saw this big gap in, or at least this big need, which is the social aspect. I think a lot of the isolation comes from trying to control the food side of friendships. And if you're not open with your friends about what you're going through, you just stop going to those social events or people stop inviting you. A lot of people can relate to everything you just shared. Hey friends, to share a bit more about my virtual recovery community called the Recovery Collective. For less than a cost of one therapy session per month, our members get access to workshops, group coaching with me, cook-alongs, yoga, recipes, meditations, and even a private Facebook community. It is seriously the most fun community in the eating disorder recovery world right now. If your eating disorder is making you feel isolated and alone, this place will lift your spirits and bring you the connection you're looking for. So I ask you to join all of us. Go to recoverycollective.mykajabi.com or you can check out the link in the show notes. 
I look forward to seeing you inside the collective and enjoy this episode. What are some tips you have for people who are hoping to start disconnecting their worth from their size or appearance? Okay, this is a big <laughs> one, Meg. Um, and, and the audience may not, depending upon where you are, you may not love what I'm going to say, but it is so, it's so true. It's re- it's, it really comes down to acceptance. Um, mm. I, I know you might out there might be thinking, just give me some tips how I can manage my weight and still be okay with the scale and all that sort of stuff. And the answer is I, I can't really. I mean, I'd love to because I know the pain. I know the pain in letting go of that and the uncertainty of if I start eating intuitively and following my food plan, if that's what you're doing, if you're in recovery, where will I end up? What will I look like? Mm. And my, my greatest fear with my eating disorder was that if I didn't do what I was doing, I would end up with the body shape and size of my grandmother. And as I mentioned to you all, she was a woman who was in a higher weight body. And even saying that I am aware that I'm body shaming in a way, the, the, the shape of my grandmother. And, and that is a product of, of what we're told as far as what we should look like and also for health. So you can see how we've conflated it in society. And as a young person, I totally, you know, took that, you know, took that in and that influenced me at that young age. Um, and certainly my thinking is a lot different now, but to explain the background behind this for, for our listeners. And so that was my fear. And we know also for our, for our clients, even though we're trying to move towards a place of weight neutrality in society, like that's, that's the new, the next revolution for us, right, is acceptance of body size and shape diversity because we are. Because <laughs> Because we all don't have the same genetics, we are just a mixed bag, a kaleidoscope of beautiful mixed up um, cultures and shapes and colours and languages and cultures um, and food preferences. The reality is we're all going to look different shapes and sizes in the same way that we're not all the same height. We don't all have the same eye colour or hair colour. Why on earth do we therefore think we should all weigh about the same? Um, yeah, I mean, what the heck is that about, right? <laughs> it's totally ignoring the idea of genetics and genetic background and the blueprint that our genetics lays out for us. And it's really mm-hmm. a large part of um, nature. And then, of course, there's nurture, which is the environmental influences on that for sure. Um, and so they ultimately also play a part in what our shape and size and athleticism, et cetera, is going to look like. But uh but really to circle back to my initial point, which is an acceptance of what our genetic piece is, our genetic blueprint. It's an acceptance mm. of what is my genetic blueprint. And that can be terrifying because when someone suggested that to me and I looked at my mother's side of the family, I was like, oh, dear. again, coming from this place of, you know, uh, of size discrimination, which was part of our culture, I was like, mm-hmm. oh, no, I can't look, that can't, I, if I, then no one's going to love me. No one's going to mm-hmm. ever want to date me. No one's ever going to want to marry me or whatever was my thinking then. Now, having mm-hmm. said all of that, uh, we now know that probably my grandmother struggled with not a neutral relationship with food, probably because she yo-yo dieted, dieted because she was told to. So ultimately there was probably disordered eating that affected where her weight settled. 
and and that runs in families we know this with eating disorders so mm. um so acceptance which you can't i don't think you can do overnight there is something called radical acceptance um i can radically accept some things but this is a pretty big one <laughs> so and there's also something about body positivity which i love but that also felt like just too much for me to go from body hate and loathing and disgust mm -hmm. to body pot. No, I couldn't do it. So what I tell my clients is let's, let's just take steps towards body neutrality, which is just being neutral about your body, not hating it. You don't have to love it, but body neutrality and also ju um, not just gratitude. Mm -hmm. Gratitude. So what I started to focus on is what can and does my body do for me? Because there was so much that I hated about it, so I had to change the narrative to change the in, inner uh, dialogue. And so the narrative that I tried to focus on is, well, first and foremost, I taped up my mirrors, by the way, and I wore my boyfriend's baggy clothes. So I, for a period of time, I totally disconnected from observing my body because I just couldn't mm. take it. But what I tried to focus on is, I'm an able-bodied person and I'm grateful for that. Um, and, and that's even more prevalent in society today, which I think is wonderful. But I have, you know, two strong legs, I have two strong arms and I've got a good brain. And so I'm going to focus on that. I'm going to focus on that and I, I think and hope I'm a nice person, so I'm going to focus on that value in myself. Mm -hmm. um, and, and so that's the stuff that I focused on. And... Um, and and that helped a lot. And and you know, I'm gonna I'm gonna be real with you, Meg, because I, I don't know that we can be any other way if we're talking about this in an honest way. I'm a product of this society. I, even though I'm fully recovered, I still live in this society. This society is still very much idolizing the thin ideal, unrealistic thin ideal. And there's ageism and there's oppression of certain people of certain colors, and also there's gender oppression. So you know, I'm still uh, susceptible to those pressures, but I do a lot of work consciously at first to to limit how much of that messaging I allowed into my personal life. So not following certain things on Insta, um, you know, just, just certain even, even TV shows or even just friends who are a little bit, you know, really that obsessive in that way, moving a little away from that and trying to establish a safer environment in my day-to-day -day and the people that I associated with to try to minimise that pressure. Like people who are going to comment about your body, check them, check it, let them know, hey, you know, that's not okay. You would say it in a nicer way. <laughs> I appreciate I appreciate your concern. Um, but, uh, you know, could we change the topic? I, I don't like talking about that or that's not a topic, I you know, that's up for public discussion or whatever. Mm -hmm. If they keep going, then consider not seeing them as much. And if they're family members, <laughs> oh, dear Lord, uh, you know. Uh, so, so what we're talking about here is how do we get to a place or what are some tips for getting to a place where you can separate your worth from your weight? And yeah. I mentioned a few things, acceptance, but I think the key piece first and foremost is realizing that we feel this way about our weight and our bodies because we've been told to do so because there's a lot of very sexy marketing out there. There's a lot of messaging. There's a lot of horrendous misinformation 
that conflates weight and health, which we now know is not true and accurate. And so you need to be an educated consumer in that respect to realize that there's a lot of BS out there that has brainwashed us to think that this is something that we need to care about. And so once you understand that, you start to get angry and that's a really good thing. And then you're like, oh, dear Lord, I've spent, mm-hmm. by the way, I'm not religious, but I, instead of cussing, I'm saying, oh, dear Lord, these days. Um, <laughs> my daughter keeps correcting me because I'm dropping S-bombs and F-bombs and she's like, mommy. So I have an eight-year-old. But, um, yeah, that's so adorable. Yeah, but the, the point of it there is, is once you realise that we've been sold a whole lot of baloney on this stuff and we've been made to feel bad about ourselves for not looking a certain way, which genetically most of us, 95% of us are not designed to look, but we're still mm-hmm. gorgeous in our own right, step into that, push back on that. And mm-hmm. if you get a boyfriend that I did, yeah. who was like many of us have, who who says, you know, you'd look a lot nicer, five pound less. I mean, I remember a guy I went out on a date with, how dare he, who was all about what I look like. And, oh, I like that you look a certain way. And I only date women who look a certain way. And I said, is that right? And I thought, oh, you are so gross. I didn't say that to him, but what I did say, I checked him. And I said, so, so apparently I look the way, uh, the type of woman that you like to date. Is that correct? <laughs> he was a Wall Street finance <laughs> Give me a bit of context here. So I, I think I could push back a bit. And he, and he said, yeah, you're my girl. This is on a first date, right? For goodness sakes. Oh and I said, I said, is that right? I said, and would you like to know what, um, what, what physical shape I'm looking for in a guy I date? And he looked at me and his jaw opened, he was, like an incredulous, like, oh, oh, it, like it had never occurred to him. And, I, and this is horrendous. And, and just know, guys, I never, like this stuff doesn't come up for me, but I felt I needed to kind of push back on him, you know, in mm. something that I don't care about. But he's like, oh, oh oh, you have a physical preference? And I'm like, oh, you, yes. Um, you know, blank, blank, blank. And so then I just said, you know, the typical image that that is out there of men, right? Because he's asking for a typical wow. image of a woman. And I said, yeah, I mean, I, I like guys with muscles and six packs. And he didn't have that physique. And he looked at me and he said, are you serious? And I said, well, if you get to date your ideal, why don't I get to date my ideal? I am being so facetious here and maybe we need to cut this out of the podcast. And I <laughs> no, never... I am enthralled. And this guy was enthralled. gobsmacked. Like it had never occurred to him ever. And you know what I learned from that? And, okay, so two points here, Meg. One, it was so sad. I was like, I was like, but I needed to speak his language in order for him to understand. And it's not anything yeah. that is of value to me. Do you know what he said that broke my heart? He was, he was oh, no. interested. He said, give me three months. Give me three months. I'll hit the gym and I, I can make that happen. And I just looked at him and I, in my head, I'm thinking that's not important to me, but I hope I'm making a point. But he did say, it, he did say, you know, it, it never occurred to me. And that's when I, that's when I let him know that that was a ruse and I said, do you realize how devaluing it is that you said that to me and that it never occurred to you? Like it's a very, it's, it's a very one-way thing and it's very discriminatory. And he was like, I, it never occurred to me and I'm sorry and I realized that my thinking was off and blah, 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 blah. So it was an opportunity to really help someone understand something. But that's, that's, that's a recent phenomena, guys, and that's not okay. 
you know. And so if my mm-hmm. self-worth was crap, I don't know that I would have been able to call him out on his stuff. And, again, if we go back to self-worth, so I've worked on myself a lot, good therapy, guys, to <laughs> learn more about having my voice and being able to, to present back to this guy. Like I didn't rip him apart, but I just said, hey, if you want that and I want this, how about it? And it really helped him to understand his complete bigotry, you know. Um, so that's just an example. Wow. That story is so empowering because I had never thought of redirecting those comments in that way. And I wish when I was single, I had used that because I've heard those comments All before myself. All and I don't, oh, it's so, and, and oh, sorry, so but not, I mean, I'm heterosexual. I, maybe people picked up on that. So I, I'm not sure on other people's um, sexual orientation, what they've experienced, but seriously, guys, guys, give it back. People give it back because, you know, the guys, so, so historically men have come from this place of judging women and they'll give you a nine or a 10. I'm like, and, and what you have the, 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 the six, I'm, I'm not, admiring this but you know if we're going to give it back you have the six pack so you can therefore comment like no unless you have a perfect body so called well maybe then I will listen to you but I won't but the point of it is (laughs) unless you have the perfect body then you have no right but the real point is you have no right anyway I heard a guy Mm -hmm. behind me yesterday who was on the elevator we're going into a store and he said something and he looked at a woman and he mumbled under his breath, I wonder what she's going to look like when she's 60. And I, I turned around and I looked at him and I, w- I wanted to say, well, you, you're no great looking thing yourself. <laughs> like, you know what I mean? <laughs> it is yeah, not okay. Yeah. And uh, historically men have felt that it is okay and it's not. Oh, my gosh. You know, it's, it's not so It's so start, important to give it back to them. Pushing back, ladies, because they honestly, I think my experience with this guy I'm telling you about it never occurred to him. And that was what was so shocking to me because, you know, I think in our field we, we, we think that people have a sense of awareness in a similar way that we do. So surely they must know that that's not a good thing to say. So just push it back on them. That is so helpful. I'm so glad you brought that up because it's very empowering. And I've never brought that up on the podcast before, the idea that you can also give it back to people a little bit to make them feel a little self-conscious on their own. Understanding <laughs> what, they're, what they're projecting onto you. Like, okay, show us mm-hmm. your six pack. I mean, mm-hmm. and that's all you have to do with a lovely smile in your face and go, oh, and show me your six pack. And they'll be like, yeah. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> it's fantastic. And fantastic. I'm sorry because I know that that can be perceived as adding to this whole ideal body. So I'm conflicted around that, but Go on, Mick. Well, what you're just saying, <laughs> what you were just saying reminds me of a comment that we talked about in the collective lately. And someone had asked Reagan Chastain, who was our recent guest in the collective, about how to combat comments about weight and quote obesity among like friends and in social circles. And Reagan suggested bringing up the bring it to the broader idea of social activism and being on the right side of like social issues. And I think there are a lot of people who align with social issues like gender equality, all the things, racial equality, and then they're still dieting and they're still trying to oppress their own body. And if you put, put it in the framework of, you know, 
you're supporting an oppressed system, oppressive system, if you're continuing to diet, I think that's also a way to kind of put it back on someone who may not have ever considered that. And also, absolutely, Meg, that's wonderful. If someone said that to me, I think I, I would immediately stop talking because I'd have to digest, excuse, pardon the pun, what they, mm-hmm. what they just said, like, because it is that. It's, it's so much larger, so much bigger. And, and also, you know, I, I think it's important for us to realise that up until like even maybe only just five years ago where this really started to gain momentum, uh, maybe even two years ago, the whole anti-diet piece, is that all of us, all of us have been brainwashed that dieting is healthy and our doctors will tell us to diet. So I think there's a certain amount of compassion that we need to have for people around us that that mm-hmm. that until told otherwise, they truly think that that's what you're supposed to do for health. But I think what we're talking about here is is obvious is 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 those people where it's even more than that, where it's an oppression, a discrimination, uh, you know, a whole, and it's one sided as well, such as this dating dating example. Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, it's amazing. <laughs> <laughs> well, coming towards the end of our show, I have one more question for you, and then we will part ways today. But do you have any success stories you can recall just from your years of working with people? in the eating disorder field of someone who truly transformed. You watch them go from, you know, connecting their worth to their size to really being free from that. And what was that transformation like oh, for them? That, that transformation is just night and day. Um, I have to say, truthfully, it is one of the most delightful, delightful things to, to witness, to bear witness to. And it is, it's like someone coming alive, someone who's been kind of like the Mm. walking dead in this very shut down, closed down, oppressed place. And then they come alive and you get to see their personality and you get to see their true opinions and you get to see them, you know, name the oppression that's out there for what it is. And you get to see them say, thanks, but no thanks. I don't want to be a part of that. And that, that doesn't get that that oppressive system doesn't get to dictate who I am. And I've got this these skills and I've got this and I am this person, this loving, creative, whatever person who's contributing to society and friends and 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 I gotta tell you guys, it's the richest experience. It's just you can probably tell I don't even have words to describe <laughs> it because it's so much a feeling. Your heart is full, you know. Our job, you know, my job is really to to coach someone or, or help them really go through that that journey themselves. It's really all their hard work and their willingness, their willingness and their courage to face this stuff mm. head on and and to take that very courageous step of saying, I'm I'm willing, I'm willing to 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 take the leap of faith and to to be a member of society and be a, a valued member of society no matter my body shape and size and to fully really own that it's it's incredible so there's a couple of clients I'm thinking about in fact I'm thinking about uh, several and I'm thinking I'm thinking about clients who their experience was from being in a in a higher weight um, body because I think that's um, in this in this weight stigma and weight bias society, um, an even harder thing to really take that that step. Um, not saying it's not hard for all of us when we're experiencing transitions in our body weight that's scary to us, but because society is so discriminatory in this way, and um, two of those 
those particular clients I'm thinking on went on to become therapists and now wow. work, work in the field and I'm so proud of them. And um, one of them in particular had to do so much work with her family because they were so much ingrained in diet culture. And so, you know, ultimately in her recovery, her weight was at a higher weight um, and her family really, really, really had a hard time accepting that. So she had to draw a lot of boundaries with them, a lot of family therapy, a lot of conversations over a number of years to get them kind of, you know, to a place where it was tolerable. Um, but for them mm-hmm. to then go on and now have a voice in the field and they're, you know, they're, they're really big, um, great um, advocates in this in this arena and another another client I'm thinking of who who works in the legal field um, and she's out there you know cycling in Central Park and doing these amazing you know 10-day cycle tours around Europe and you know a lot of things a lot of things that um, she would never have done many years ago you know and it's really kind of coming back to yourself and having a sense of confidence in who you really are um, and I'm not, I'm not saying that they don't have their moments uh, because of the society that we live in, unfortunately, but my goodness, it's, it's incredible. And when they talk about it, you know, you, they're, they're just, they're so, they're so, they're alive in a way that they mm. were not previously according, again, their words. Wow. I think that's a really nice way to put it. It is a process of coming alive, you know? Yeah. Yeah. A rebirth into it the is. true you. It yeah. is. And shedding off that BS that we were told that kept us kind of, you know, like a, a, a wallflower and then mm-hmm. really finding your voice and then it's like, oh, my gosh, I have a voice <laughs> and I have opinions, God damn it. <laughs> <laughs> yes. Oh, man. Well, Melanie, this has been a true pleasure and delight to have you on the show today. Thank you so much for joining me. Thank you so much, Meg. What a pleasure. All right. Have an amazing evening or afternoon. I'll talk to you soon. 